Welcome. This is season three of The Daily Market, where we've decided to do something a little special. Earlier this year, startup junkie and marketplace master Ty Wolf-Jones, hey Ty, approached me and pitched us the idea of instead of interviewing founders and marketers, why don't we dive into the world of marketplaces, the VH1 behind the music of marketplaces, or what is the making of the sausage of a marketplace? Ty could bring the operations point of view, and I could bring the marketing point of view, and we could make some marketplace magic, or maybe a little more like Marketplace Mayhem. So join us for the series where we've spoken to over a dozen marketplace leaders and pioneers from Uber, Convoy, Bellhop, DoorDash, Rover, but also some rising stars and marketplaces from multiple countries, venture capitalists, and more. You're not going to want to miss an episode. Marketplace Mayhem listeners, who is Bryce Bennett? Bryce Bennett is the founder and CEO of Solo, a platform that is bringing tools and transparency to independent gig workers, optimizing their time and allowing them to move between more gigs. They also recently acquired their seed funding, so you know they're going hard. Bryce comes from a track record of startup marketplaces. First, Uber Seattle, where he launched Seattle, and then eventually Idaho, Alaska, and Montana. He also was GM of Uber Portland, where he ran that whole damn business. After that, he joined as a key leader at Convoy, where he oversaw Convoy's matching process between supply and demand. Clearly, you can see Bryce is a badass. Enter Solo. Over the course of 12 months, Solo has acquired 5.3 million seed funding, grown to over 2,000 gig workers and growing, and is providing a critical service to a potential market of 60 million gig workers in America while being a free platform. Damn! This conversation I thought was flipping sweet. Ty, what do you think? Bryce, it seems like he's a very calm but electrifying marketplace leader. I know you worked with him and he really brings this undercurrent of ambition and ideas and he seems to be able to go hard in every marketplace he's in. What do you think, Ty? Yeah, I've learned a lot from Bryce. I think he's one of the best operators out there and obviously has the resume to prove it. So yeah, join us as we get to talk to Bryce, learn more about his journey into startups. We dive deep into starting Uber and the opportunity to bring Uber everywhere. Obviously, the lessons of jumpstarting a marketplace, which is what happens when you try to go to Alaska, Montana, et cetera. And then today, he, how he's using the power of data for the gig worker and how Solo is becoming a, an indispensable tool in that fashion. The other thing I'll say is just really the focus on the worker and the supply side. You know, one of the cool themes in this conversation was Bryce's knowledge of the gig worker. And we say that with regardless if they're a Uber driver, a convoy, a big truck driver, or any other type of worker in these marketplaces that he, he really dug into their experience. I think this episode is particularly valuable to operators. <laughs> if you're doing this at a marketplace today, learn from one of the best. But I also think it's an important conversation to listen to when you are running a marketplace to really 
keep that view of your supply side of the business, how important it is to know their story and to uh, provide them the tools and the access to things to be successful themselves. It'll help you be more successful as a marketplace. So please enjoy. As always, you can like and subscribe, but we prefer that you leave a comment, tell us what you like, don't like, etc. And know that you can also find our show notes. We're putting them out there on our website at jacobkubica.com. That's J-A-K-U-B-K-U-B-I-C-K-A.com. Please check it out. And right now, enjoy. Let's get it. Bryce, thanks so much for coming out. Thanks for having me, guys. I thought we'd begin with a little warm-up question. What was Puget Sound Prep Productions? <laughs> wow. Uh, digging through the archives for this one. Um, and I'm trying to remember if Ty and I have talked about this. Uh, that goes back to high school uh, when I started a video production company. Uh, I was a big sports fan, also enjoyed video production. And this was kind of like when Final Cut Pro was starting to become more prevalent and uh, kind of bringing quality video editing, we'll say, to consumers. And so uh, I started a... Uh, uh, athletic recruiting video company. So like for uh, kids that were looking to send out videos for, you know, call it football or basketball, gymnastics. Like a sponsor me tape. Yeah. Yeah. And so what they would typically do, and they would actually send DVDs at that time. It was very different. It's hard to believe that was just 15 years ago, but people would send DVDs to coaches at like, you know, different programs across the country. And so I would take all their sports uh, footage edit it down into what they wanted in like a five to 10 minute clip and then send it out to the coaches across the country to help with their recruiting efforts. So that was my, uh, one of my first, like, I guess, actual businesses, uh, very, very early on in high school and college. And you did that all of college? I did. Yeah. I did it on the side. I, uh, during college, it was, you know, relatively flexible, which was nice. So I go to class, had a normal job as well, or normal job, I guess, like an hourly job. And then you'd uh, try to pick up some work doing that stuff, uh, you know, go out film on Friday nights for a football player and then, you know, turn it into a video over the course of a couple of weeks. Yeah. S- sounds like a good gig. It, it was good for college. Uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun and, you know, fun to still be a part of the athletic side of things, given, uh, you know, that was a big interest of mine. Yeah. And did you work with, you went to University of Washington. So did you do that for University of Washington athletes specifically, but then also high school ones? No. So, well, I did go to UW uh, and that's where I was when I was doing it, but I was actually doing it for a lot of my all the modern Newport High School uh, athletes. And and they would end up, you know, a lot of the, the D1 kids, you know, usually had a lot of uh, coaches uh, wanting their time and their, their talents. So I would do a lot of kind of D2, D3 um, players and help them kind of get connected to those coaches where they didn't have as much exposure typically. So not as many UW athletes, but a, a, definitely a variety out there across different different size programs. Yeah, that's really cool. I Ty probably doesn't know this this about me, but growing up, I was crazy about skateboarding, and I wanted to be a pro skateboarder until I was fifteen. And in that culture, it's all about making your sponsor me <laughs> tape, where it's like yep. the the greatest hits of twenty tricks. It's about two or three minutes long, and in some way, the videos you were making was the greatest hits for these high school athletes to to get yeah. into a college program, right? That's that's exactly right, right? You know, it's it's to it's, you know show a little bit of their uh, skill set in games, and you know maybe you'd intermix some practice stuff, and you know their statistics, all that kind of stuff. Exactly, it, 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 the equivalent of a sponsor me video. 
would you have to go to a lot of games then? Would you be at all the games? Uh, so this is where the like uh, time commitment broke down yeah. in terms of what I was charging. I wasn't very good at pricing uh, in in high school, <laughs> so you know, like I was, de- I think I devalued my time down to probably like five bucks an hour at that point. And so I eventually figured out, like, hey, instead of me coming and shooting, you know, uh, a three hour long uh, game on a Friday night, like give me the the team footage. Or if you want me to do that, it's going to be extra money. But it took me like a year and a half, two years to figure out of like parents and, uh, and whatnot being like, yeah, you're really cheap, you know? And like, and I, was, <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I spent like 50 hours on this now that I think about it and then charged like yeah. 250 bucks. Uh, so yeah. yeah right. uh, so, you know, you don't, yeah, you're 18, 17, 18 years old. You don't really know at that point, you know, kind of the value you're bringing and price elasticity, but um, it was a good, good lesson learned early on in my career. And I guess maybe it's a little bit the, the dots connecting after you're, you've already connected the dots going back and being like, well, that was technically a gig. And I was, you know, I was doing, I was doing that. And then maybe you did other gigs in the future too. I don't know. Is your entrepreneurial spirit was already starting then, right? Yeah, it was, uh, you know, it goes back to probably um, growing up around uh, my my grandfather and my grandparents, I should say, ran a small airline in Southeast Alaska. And so I grew up around like small business. So, uh, you know, they had, I think, like 35, 40 employees. They ran the mail in, you know, certain parts of the state and tourism. And, you know, when that came in, the cruise ships came in each summer. And so I used to just go up there in high school and, and be around that all the time, work in the office and like jump in the planes and, you know, do maintenance in the hangar and all that kind of stuff. So it was just kind of a uh, do anything and everything as the grandkid, you know, uh, each summer. Um, and that's where it started. And then I kind of got the itch to like, hey, what could I do in high school? Started a t-shirt business, did the video production thing, and eventually led into, uh, you know, some, some bigger things down the road. But th- that's where things kind of got started. T-shirt business? T-shirt business, uh, which I feel like, I feel like, at th- these days, like it, almost everyone's like tried to start a t-shirt business or like designed a t-shirt at some point. But, but, uh, yeah, I, uh, started a company back in uh, high school. This was when bear grills on the discovery channel, uh, oh, man yeah. versus wild was really popular. Yeah. And, uh, and so, uh, anyways, long story short, uh, we came up with like a little tagline uh, of bear grills and started making shirts, uh, with bear prints on them. It, it was kind of ridiculous, very high school, but uh, they started selling. I started selling on eBay, and I sold like a few hundred of them. And Damn. I made. I don't know what I was doing. Uh, but uh, made the mistake of like applying for like a trademark on the design. Oh. And uh, which I don't know why I did that. I could have just stayed under the radar. But I got a cease and desist letter from Bear Grylls and his lawyer, and like you can't trademark Bear Grylls' name or his likeness, all this kind of stuff. So it was. It was, um, yeah, it was another good learning experience of like, you know, going out there and, and just kind of like uh, messing around, trying to trying to make a business work. That could have been a great PR ploy to get onto the show. You know, how he like brings on celebrities and play, <laughs> yeah. then you just wear all the gear, you know, you're just yeah, exactly. decked out and Bear Grylls is the name and maybe like a bear claw on yeah. the t-shirt. Yeah. Well, I, that's a show I, I'm fine watching. I don't know if I want to be on that show. It looks, right, right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, like they're eating Ooh. like. Yeah, it looks pretty painful when they've done the like celebrity versions where they're like eating, you know, like random stuff in the wilderness and like spending the night out in the cold. Like, I don't know if that's my cup of tea. Yeah, making blankets with huge six foot leaves, you know? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Covered in rainforest water. Yeah. (laughs) 
How did your career end up bringing you to marketplace startups? I, I we we I did learn that you had an analyst background, and I think I found that you you worked in financial services or wealth management before you ended up starting to work at at Uber. Right? Was were you just scratching your own itch with work, starting to work in marketplaces there? Yeah, I think like I, when it came to the marketplace side, I, I think it was somewhat of a lucky you know course of events. I, I think I like a lot of. 22 year olds were coming out of college. I had a finance and entrepreneurship degree from UW and, you know, knew that I liked the entrepreneurship side, didn't really know what that meant. Um, and so I joined an early stage startup here in Seattle called Power It Solutions for a little bit as an energy analyst. Um, and, you know, that lasted about seven, eight months. I was, you know, just doing some basic support work. And then I decided, hey, maybe I should go use my finance degree and went and did corporate finance at a company here called Crane Aerospace and Electronics out in Redmond. And spent about a year doing that and realized I don't really like the big company thing uh, very much. And so I was actually, when it came to, I, that's what led me to Uber eventually. And it wasn't necessarily because it was a marketplace-based startup that drew me in originally. I loved the product as a consumer. This was like 2012, like early 2012. And it was brand new. It was you know really mind-blowing to go on your phone, download an app, tap a button, get a car that shows up. And, and so my first... Uh, night ever using it. I mean, you know, you're 22, you're going to go out on a Friday night with friends. And I lived with a bunch of guys. And usually you would call two cabs because only one cab was going to show up that night to go out. And it was going to take an hour. And I eventually, I, you know, I go out, I'm like, Hey guys, I heard of this thing called Uber. I do the same thing. So we order two cabs and an Uber and everyone goes away and starts getting ready to leave. And for an hour later, and the Uber starts driving towards me, like, you know, in seven to eight minutes. And I'm like, guys, I think the car's coming. I think the car's going to be here in a second, guys. Like, guys, get ready. Like, uh, and so from that point on, I was, you know, big, uh, I was just blown away by the experience, you know, and, and the problem it solved. And eventually uh, I applied off the back of a uh, email receipt to, to join Uber uh, in Seattle early on. So it was just a like, hey, we're looking for an ops and logistics manager. And I was like, hey, I don't want to do corporate finance anymore, so uh, I'll uh, take a shot. That's what I was going to say. I mean, you joined the Uber Seattle uh, pretty early on. What what was the team at that point? Yeah, at, at that point, it was, we were in this little basement office in Capitol Hill, and there were three people uh, in the in the office. And so there was about 150, I think, like the employee number. I eventually found out I had like 150 at Uber. And, uh, you know, it was really like things were just getting hacked together, you know, every day, everything was very manual. Um, and my job, uh, at the beginning was to open up the doors, uh, to the office every day and, and work directly with drivers, which was uh, a blast. And at the time it was just town car and black car drivers. Uh, right. So, um, a lot of people probably don't even remember now, but like Uber originally was just a town car service, um, here in Seattle and elsewhere too. And so we would uh, bring people in, tell them how to like uh, use the app, jump in the back of their car, make sure the car was you know relatively clean and, and good to go, um, meet the drivers face to face, run a background check, all those things. And you would just do that like every day for the first three four months I was there. Uh, and so um, very early on, but just like a lot of just you know, operational execution and process at that point. But it was a blast to be able to walk out on the street and know those drivers and get to see them, you know, around the city uh, in those early days because it was so new and exciting and consumer facing and everything else. What did these drivers think of this? So here are these town car drivers 
they hear this app called Uber, funny name. Um, they walk in, they see college kids, like, and they're like, what, what am I doing here? Like, what is this? How did that, how did those conversations go? How did you talk to those guys and get to know those guys? You know, and I think we've got a uh, really cool, unique uh, driver group in Seattle compared to every city has their own uh, kind of groups and, and um, demographics when it comes to the drivers. And, and for Seattle, it's a larger East African population that are a, a part of Uber here. So, you know, you've got a combination of Ethiopia, Eritrea, um, and Somalia um, backgrounds. And so it was, it was a really uh, phenomenal experience because a lot of people, first generation or maybe second generation, um, getting to hear a little bit about their stories. Uh, as a lot of people might know, it's hard to come over from somewhere else and get a job that pays a decent wage in a new country, especially the United States. And so at the beginning, this was a phenomenal experience for a lot of them. You know, it was like I got to, they could go out, buy it, buy a town car before they got really expensive because they literally couldn't make enough of them. Uh, and, you know, it was an opportunity to go make 30, 35, 40 bucks an hour back in 2012, 2013. And, you know, it was a, it was a really cool experience because people were excited about it. Uh, they were kind of getting the opportunity to uh, make good money uh, and also set their own time, uh, be their own boss, you know, all those early kind of taglines for the gig economy. But that that was uh, a lot of fun to be able to get to know those people and, and work with them. And they all had like my phone number. So we text and like ended up going to like birthday parties and like baptisms and stuff like that for drivers earlier on. And so it was a lot of fun. Yeah, I mean that that's what I remember when I when I met you was everybody all the original drivers from Seattle ha having your phone number and and checking in periodically from all those early days. But so these these original drivers they were already like li some of them were already limo drivers and black car and Uber was basically telling them you're going to make extra money when you're on your downtime potentially. Is that right? Yeah, that's how it started. It wasn't a supposed to be a dedicated platform. Like the whole pitch was like, hey, you've got your own business, you know, and you've got your own clientele as a town car driver. You know, we can help uh, essentially fill your downtime uh, with excess demand. And it, it at the time, I, it didn't, you know, it doesn't cost anything. It was just a phone deposit because smartphones hadn't completely permeated, you know, the population at that point. And so there was a deposit on the phone. But other than that, it was like a no risk uh, option for, for these town car drivers to be like, Hey, I'll, I'll put my cars on, you know, uh, the Uber platform. And if we get requests, great. If not, you know, not a big deal. Uh, and then eventually obviously like things started to pick up and, uh, very quickly the, the kind of, uh, book of business they had before was like, Hey, it, it's pretty much all Uber now, you know, because I mean, you just, you could go on in those early days and fill hundred percent of your, your time with requests any time of the day. Uh, and so it was, uh, it was, you know, right at the beginning when demand was far outpacing supply. So fast forward a few years, cause I remember when you interviewed me, one of the things you talked about was being in Anchorage, Alaska in a rental car setting up iPhone fours, I believe yeah. for yeah. all the new drivers that were popping into that town. So these drivers were not driving town cars and black cars. They were, they were getting a free phone, a new opportunity in, in a state that didn't have Uber yet. Right. And so, yeah. so fast forward a little bit, talk to us about the Uber X Uber everywhere days and how, how you took those early fundamentals and, and, and launched those cities. 
Yeah, it was uh, when we started doing it was called, like you said, Ty, it was called Uber Everywhere, which included Anchorage, Alaska, which, you know, is is pretty wild in, in hindsight. And, and not that Anchorage is a small city, but uh, comparatively to like the New York's and the Seattle's of the world, it was a little bit different. Uh, and so in between there, what happened, right, was uh, the town car product uh, was still, you know, a big deal for Uber, but UberX had taken over. And uh, one of the early jobs I had was we need to figure out how to launch this peer-to-peer product. It's uh, unregulated or there's very light regulations in most cities. Uh, you know, how do we uh, ultimately produce a lower cost product? Lyft at the time was also expanding quickly, right? So Uber was kind of this higher end product at the moment. Lyft was doing this donation-based like kind of product that was on the lower end where, you know, it was like hop in your friend with a car or hop in with your friend in a car kind of thing. Right. And so <laughs> right, right. Uber very quickly realized, and tra- I remember Travis talking about this, like, Hey, you know, Lyft is beating us on price point here, even though, you know, Uber had the kind of more luxurious experience. And very quickly you saw the two companies gravitate where like Lyft upped their game and became like a true charging service. And Uber came down on price point and found a way to launch UberX with, you know, mostly Priuses, but all sorts of cars, Camrys, et cetera. Um, and so that was the big shift in between when we were in Alaska, right, the very beginning days. And so uh, UberX obviously being a lower price point, same, you know, ETAs or, you know, same pickup times, relatively similar experience, just not as nice of a car. Um, led to, you know, just more growth than anyone knew what to do with at Uber in those days. And so we started taking it to cities like Anchorage and, uh, and that meant starting up a marketplace from scratch. Right. Uh, and so we took a lot of those early experiences, um, and Uber had the benefit of like some extraordinary product market fit on the rider or the demand side, right. The, the experience for riders was pretty, still pretty poor to get around any city in those days. Cabs were not necessarily reliable. Um, you know, it was expensive. They wouldn't take your credit cards. So it was painful. Uh, and so you just kind of like didn't even think about it up until you experienced Uber for the first time. And so, you know, you had this kind of pent up demand for Uber in a lot of cities. And what our job to do, you know, back then is, you know, Ty, is we would roll into a city, basically like book out like hotel conference rooms and like, or meet people at coffee shops or you name it and try to bring on as much supply as we could in, in those early days. Um, and so I, you know, that meant a lot of uh, face-to-face hours, you know, doing presentations, bringing drivers on and, and ultimately trying to catch up to the pent up demand that it, that existed in a lot of these uh, cities. How do you entice people to become a driver in a city where there is no supply currently? Yeah. So this is, this kind of gets to the whole um, jump starting a marketplace kind of concept, right? Uh in this case, when you don't have a marketplace, you've got you know no transactions going, you've got no drivers, uh, and theoretical demand of like people who have downloaded the app. Uh, we would you'd have to subsidize, right? You'd have to put out those guarantees uh, as a way to essentially lock in that supply and bring them onto the platform. Because even though you you know we had by the time we got to Anchorage, Alaska, we had pretty good demand uh, generally from Uber's perspective in most cities. You know, it was a new city. It wasn't regular. It was hit and miss. You'd have some hours they're super busy, some hours where there's no demand, and so you kind of had to come in and, and ultimately buy and blocks workers' time to subsidize the supply side of the marketplace, so that you would have availability for riders, right? Because it's kind of like one of those things where 
marketplaces, we talk, everyone talks about network effects where they spiral upwards really, really quickly, right? And each additional user creates incremental value for each subsequent one. But there's also the aspect when you're starting a uh, marketplace where it can spiral downwards really, really fast, where if a rider comes on and there's no drivers around, you may lose that rider forever, if not months, until they decide to reopen the app and consider this again. So, and that can be applied to a lot of different marketplaces in terms of like, you know, supplier product availability or, you know, you name it. But that was, you know, some of the interesting like um, early kickstarting and jumpstarting that we had to do uh, when we rolled into a new city like that. The other thing that <laughs> I finally remember that we ran into was these cities, counties, states weren't always ready for this innovation. You know, here you said, we've got this pinup demand. You find these people who just want a gig, you know, to go out and, 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 and do something. And the city or the county uh, may be against it. And there may be lots of reasons, right? Uh, a, a powerful uh, taxi a lobby, uh, uh, et cetera. Um, obviously, I, I, I finally remember Boise, Idaho, or Idaho in general. Um, I love, you know, the parts that you can talk about, but obviously it was a pretty public conversation that we were having in the state of Idaho. Um, I'd love to talk about a little bit of your work that you did to change literally the regulations uh, in the state of Idaho um, and how that, you know, benefited not only Uber, but the workers, the people there that, that wanted to do this. Yeah, it, and, uh, yeah, that was uh, an interesting six months for sure. Uh, and I mean, it was kind of a microcosm of what we saw around the world, right? I think what a lot of people didn't realize is how entrenched in some places and how protected um, ground transportation services like cabs and shuttles and things like that were in some cities. And um, if you take the case of Boise, Idaho, it was uh, a situation where there there wasn't just one or two companies, which you know, some places you would only see one or two companies that actually operated cabs uh, and owned all the medallions or the licenses. But in Boise, it was, you know, one or two players owned like, I think, two thirds. And then there was a bunch of independent operators. And they were very tapped into the city government, uh, to local elected officials. There were certain rules that they had to abide by that were archaic, right, around like, you know, slapping uh, lights on the top of their vehicle or, you know, not being able to pick up in certain places or having to charge a fixed rate, right? And it, things that ultimately technology was going to improve for both the, the driver and the, the consumer or the rider. And so, um, you know, when you came into a, a city like that, every city was different, but Boise and specifically the city council was and the mayor weren't as excited about a new service competing with those cab companies that uh, had pretty deep ties to those officials. And so, um, you know, it change is always hard. Some cities embraced it more than others. Um, but eventually what it led to in Boise is unfortunately we had to leave because we were offering free rides for a period of three or four months to kind of give everyone a, an idea of what it was like to have Uber in a town like Boise. And Boise is growing super quickly uh, at that point as it is today. And uh, there was a lot of outcry for like, hey, let's let's find a way to keep us uh, around. But Unfortunately, you know, we couldn't uh, get to an agreement and we ended up having to go to the state level or the state legislature, which is also in Boise. Uh, and so we ended up um, working with state legislators that were maybe a little bit more forward thinking and uh, 
uh, energetic in terms of not bringing not only bringing Uber and ride sharing to Boise, but also to other cities around the state as well. What kind of argument can you make in that situation? What do you think was really compelling to that audience? <laughs> I, I think what we tried to get through, and it didn't always land, and this is kind of the conundrum, right, of uh, the kind of entrenched, protected nature of the cab companies, right, was we were saying, hey, you know, make it easier for them too. Uh, you know, don't give us special rules. We're not asking for that. We're just pointing out that there's technology now that makes this whole process of getting a vehicle and ground transportation and pricing and everything else a lot more transparent, safer. Uh, you knew that everyone we had go through our system was getting a background check and uh, and you could see that. Like it, it was, that was the argument. It was like, hey, don't, don't give us any sort of advantage. If anything, you know, pull cumbersome regulations off the cab companies as well. And let's, you know, compete in an open marketplace. Right. Um, and so, but the problem was, ironically, the cab companies didn't necessarily even want, want that because <laughs> it, it was like, that's our kind of moat or protection around our business. Right. They right? want a closed market. Uh, right. Yeah. They want a fixed supply market because it ensures, you know, that there's always going to be business for their vehicles, even if they're running a sub uh, par product, right? So it, there was a lot of very odd conversations like that, that Boise is a microcosm of things that a lot of Uber folks experience like around, around the world, just in different forms. Well, and just to kind of nail that, that, that last point there was, this was also, it was giving access to more people to be able to do this easier, right? Like that point around the moat and, and, and the supply constraint, like, what you were fighting for, we were fighting for in that state uh, eventually was giving more people the ability to have have work, right? To have a gig, to be able to do this, make this easier. The cab company is maybe arguably arbitrarily making it challenging. And to your point, there's there may be reasons for that. Um, but in essence, uh, remind me how it shook out in Idaho. Did we actually make it easier for everybody or did we... No, yeah. that's that, that's a, it's a great point, and like that um, was a big part of it, right? Is that uh, the nice part about uh, Uber, Lyft, right? Was that there weren't any commitments from the worker or the driver side, right? You could sign up, you could log online, you could access, you know, essentially instant work anytime you wanted, and for a lot of people, like that's something they hadn't been able to take advantage of up until that point, right? They're always kind of having to do maybe fixed or part-time shift jobs, right? And so um, this was a big win for the worker side as well. Uh, and uh, you know how it ended up shaking out is we ended up, uh, there was a, a couple of sponsors at the state level that ultimately put together legislation that brought uh, ride sharing to the entire state of Idaho, not just within kind of city limits of Boise. And so it uh, ended up being you know, a win for pretty amazing. Like we brought you know, Uber ended up in Idaho Falls and like Coeur d'Alene and, you know, there are uh, Uber drivers all over the place now and Lyft drivers for that matter, um, as a result of like that, you know, more of a statewide approach to that legislation, um, which was cool to see at, at the end there. It was a long road, but when we got there. Yeah, I, I guess to start leading closer to solo, what, so what, what did you start observing while working in to gig marketplace startups uh, while being at Convoy and Uber that led you to this to this action of, of starting Solo? Yeah, and so Solo, right, it, we're building a software platform for app and gig workers uh, that do things like ride sharing, food delivery, grocery delivery, parcel, courier, other app-based jobs 
so that they can ultimately uh, manage their business of one all in one place with resources, tools, data that they need to uh, make this a uh, sustainable, uh, flexible source of income for them, right? And uh, and so what you know, fast forward five six years from the Boise days, uh, I think what you've seen in the last couple of years is that uh, there's an intense amount of fragmentation in the space now. It used to be just an Uber and Lyft kind of show where workers kind of like it was like pick one, Uber and Lyft. It's both ride sharing. It's you know not that different. But since you've seen the you know very rapid rise of food delivery led by DoorDash and then you know Uber Eats kind of coming in and offering services there, Grubhub, you've seen grocery shopping like Instacart and Shipt explode over the last year and a half of the pandemic. And so, I mean, it was a lot of those very early experiences with you know town car drivers and then um, you know drivers in Boise and then truck drivers at Convoy that. Uh, spurred my co-founder and I's interest in this space because it it wasn't going away in spite of all the challenges of like the fact that you know it sometimes doesn't provide a big safety net. People kept running towards the flexibility of this work and the opportunity it brought to be able to pop online at any time and kind of not only manage your time but make a decent amount of money doing it. And so we we looked at that landscape though and said, hey, the companies can't really step in and help workers too much here because it crosses the employment line. Government isn't moving very fast to actually put real solutions in place for these folks. And so we think that ultimately we can step in and help provide a platform for a third way of working uh, that you know makes this a more sustainable option for them. So just to dig into that a little bit, but isn't it, I mean, you know, I mean, I'm a gig worker, I'm a driver, like, isn't it pretty easy for me? I just go to DoorDash and, and deliver a bit, or I go to Uber tonight because I got that too. And you know, isn't that easy for me as a gig worker? Yeah, no, it's it's a good question because I think when we we were trying to remove our own maybe biases when we first started solo, and we did a lot of uh, conversations, uh, you know, not, maybe not face to face, but mask to mask, like in the summer of 2020, like where we were like talking about like, hey, is it, is it really insurance, you know, that is really bugging you, or is it you know something else? Is it expense tracking? What what's the hardest thing about this job? And over and over and over, what we heard from people was it's the volatility and the uncertainty around what I'm going to make. And you know, I think that's the thing that a lot of people forget, or maybe you just aren't even aware of. If you're an you know an eater or a, you know someone who gets your groceries or a rideshare rider, is that those workers are working off of variable rate pay. You know, it's job by job. It a large percentage of it can be tips. For food delivery drivers, 50% of their income is tips. Uh, and so you look at those numbers and you hear that feedback from workers around like, yeah, one you know, one evening I'm making 40 bucks an hour, the next I'm making 10. I don't know where to work or what jobs are like available to me. That's a real stress on me if I'm trying to do this long term. And so that's why we started at Solo with the income side, which is we bring in and aggregate market information amongst workers when they sign up with us. And we deliver back to them predictions uh, on an hour-by-hour, day-by-day basis for each major platform in Seattle to help them not only optimize their income and earn more, work the best job in that given hour, but also we guarantee those predictions. So we put a a floor on what they're going to make. And so it takes the anxiety out of that kind of whole equation of, you know, ultimately earnings volatility. 
sounds familiar to our conversation earlier about <laughs> our early days of Uber and how to how did we make sure that we jump started a market? So you're you're able to guarantee income for these guys. If what? Like, do they have to? Like, how, yeah. How do you do that? How do you handle that? What if they do whatever they want? How, how do you guarantee? How are the guarantees set up? Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a great question. Like, so what we ask when someone comes in is they link their accounts with us. So let's Ty, let's just say you're on DoorDash and uh, and Uber, uh, for example. You would come in and you link your work account, similar to like how you might use Plaid to link your bank accounts together. And so what that gives us the ability to do is say, okay, now we know a little bit about Ty. We know that he's on these two platforms. He typically works these days or these hours. And so what we produce for you is that forward-looking schedule that has predictions and guarantees as a part of it. And so when you come into our product, you'll set your schedule. It's up to you what, when and where you work, of course. But let's say you want to work this evening from five till seven on Uber and uh, and seven till nine on DoorDash, for example, or maybe reverse. Uh, and what we'll say is, great, we will predict that you're going to earn $85 in those four hours. If you go online and accept rides with those companies during those four hours, we're going to guarantee that you make 85 bucks. We, that's how confident we are in those predictions. And so we do uh, you know, ask that you follow those, those guidelines and are online and of course and all those things. But if you do that and you come up short, we're going to make up the difference for you. So if you go out there and you make $78, we're going to pay you $7 at the end of the week for the fact that, you know, our predictions uh, weren't accurate, um, you know, and, and ultimately give you that peace of mind. And so um, it's it's an important, uh, you know, piece, I think, of building trust with our platform for workers that they know that it's, it's not a too good to be true. They can trust the predictions. And if for some reason they're wrong, like, you know, I'm going to be made whole at the end of this. Hey, hey, wasn't that awesome? Hope you're enjoying it so far. Yeah, and you better get ready because we didn't end the conversation there. So stay tuned for part two of this striking conversation. More mayhem coming. Thank <laughs> you.